Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Sid Lathamez with Lathamez Real Estate in Twin Falls, Idaho. Last year, he closed 188 transactions with a total sales volume of $24 million and manages 140 rental properties. His average sales price was $128,000, of which 41% were buyers and 59% were sellers. He has a 13-member team, four buyer specialists, one client care manager, one escrow manager, one director of first impressions, one bookkeeper, one rental manager, two rental administrators, one signage and delivery person, and one team leader. Sid Lathamez is the team leader of the Lathamez Real Estate Company. He's been an agent for 24 years. In his best year, 2007, he closed 184 transactions worth $27 million. In this call, Sid talks about being a farm boy, developing his work ethic on the family farm for 12 years before transitioning into real estate and selling 25 homes his first 10 months in the business, working in a small rural town of 45,000 people, a detailed description of his successful guarantee buyout program, how he generates 58% of his business by repeating referrals from past clients and sphere of influence, his focus on attracting sellers and carrying 100 to 150 listings at a time, an in-depth discussion of how a real estate agent can plan for retirement through real estate investment, how he accumulated 85 rental units, bringing in $75,000 in gross monthly rent, a simple concept for reducing tenant turnover by signing long-term leases up to 10 years, how to buy rental properties without banks or conventional financing, what the ideal rental property looks like, team dynamics, systems, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Sid. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I'm great, Sid. Thanks for joining us. Sid, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. My family has a farm, farm, ranch, dairy, and I, um, after college, went back to the family farm ranch, and I worked there for about 12, 13 years, and I had an opportunity to get into real estate, had an interest in uh, learning about investing. So I uh, left the family farm and moved to Twin Falls. Our farm is about 40 miles from Twin Falls and uh, got into the real estate business working under uh, Dick Irwin, who has uh, been my mentor for years and years. So you were uh, in the family farm there for over a decade, and then you switched to real estate. Why did you decide to get into real estate? I've always had an interest in real estate. Um, I really wanted to get into the investing side of real estate. That, that was the part that interested me. I thought that uh, no better way to learn than to practice it. And um, I decided to uh, 
meet with a broker, and he and I had a lot in common. <clears throat> he also was off of a farm, farm boy. Twin Falls is a, uh, a small, our population is 45,000, and we're kind of a farming community. And he and I had a lot in common, and we hit it off, and that's kind of how we started. When you got started in real estate, did you have a fast start or a slow start? Well, it seemed slow to me. Um, it seemed like, uh, you know, I started, I didn't have any uh, didn't have any cash reserves. I didn't have any money in my checking account. I didn't have any money. And it was one of those deals that I just had to make it work. So it seemed like it was slow. I, I started in February, and I think I sold, uh, I think if I remember correctly, I think it was 25 homes my first 10 months in that first year, which was 10 months. And uh, I started there, and then after that, I just skipped on every year trying to tried to double my production. I didn't quite do that, but kind of tried to grow from there is what I tried to do. Sid, how long have you been in the real estate business? I started in February of 1991. That puts you at somewhere around 23, 24 years. Does that sound right? Yeah, it'd be 20, I think 24 years in February. Sid, how many homes did you sell last year? I believe we had... Uh, it was like 188 transactions last year, I think, is what we sold. Do you recall the sales volume? We sold 24, 24 million last year. Sid, where is Twin Falls, Idaho? We're in southern Idaho. We are about uh, one and a half hours east of Boise, kind of southeast of Boise. Uh, we are between, we're kind of a hub. We're between Boise and Pocatello, which are the main two main cities in southern Idaho. So we're kind of a little retirement community, farming community, rural retirement community. We've just had a big hospital build a new facility in Twin Falls, and I believe that Twin Falls is going to see a tremendous amount of growth in the next five to ten years. Do you know the population there in uh, Twin Falls? Yes, our population in Twin Falls is 45,000. But what's interesting about Twin Falls is we service about 150,000 people come here to shop. So we're a, we're a hub. Could you please describe your current real estate market? Our average sales price is about 133000 As far as average days on the market, Mike, what we're seeing there is I think we're about 138 days on average home. What our company sells primarily is single-family residential. We do do some commercial work and we do investment property, and we also do farm and ranch. What we're seeing is our market, I think it was, it was November 15th of 2007, was the peak of our market, and at that point, it's, I remember the day, I came into the office, and like the, it was like the phones weren't working, and we actually called from our cell phones to the office phones to make sure the phones were working because the phones just had stopped ringing. Our market just started sliding from there, and uh, I've never had a bad year before that. Never experienced that. 2008 was a terrible year for us. Market kept sliding and sliding, and we've just now started rebounding about the last year and a half from our market. Our market now is we're starting to see some uh, quite a bit of new residential, new construction, which we do quite a bit of that as well. So our market's starting to rebound a little bit, and uh, the issue we're having is a little bit short on inventory. But um, buyers are still shopping pretty hard, but inventory is kind of hard to find. So we're seeing a trend where buyers are actually going into new construction because they're not finding what they want on the existing market. So our market is appreciating and getting stronger. Sid, do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? Well, 
That's an interesting question. I, uh, I like to think of myself as the cleanup guy. Uh, a lot of times we go on interviews and I've, I've found out that deep, uh, sellers have said to me, oh, well, this with this person, if they don't sell it, then we'll call you in. And I think what we've done is we've done a good job of if, um, if a home's hard to sell or someone's not actually able to sell their home, we do offer a buyout program, which has caused a lot of people to call us. But I think that's probably our niche is that uh, people say, well, if it, if it doesn't sell, we'll call you in at that point. We'll list the house with you and get it sold. Sid, how does that buyout program work? How it works is, uh, let's say you came to us, Mike, and said, you know, you wanted to, you wanted to buy a house. And uh, say we were looking around in the market, we could not find a house for you that met your needs. We would talk to a builder about building a house for you. And let's say the builder said, oh, I could have the house done for you in four months. So what we would do is we would guarantee that your house would be sold by the time your new house was built. So we would step in and buy your existing house so you could move from your existing house, take your equity out, to the new house that's being built. Or we can do that on a house that's being purchased, even if it's an existing house. But we use it more in the new construction. I assume then that you're purchasing those properties at a, a discount to the fair market value or what you perceive the fair market value to be. Could you tell us what kind of discount that you're offering in that safety net of the, the guarantee buyout? One of the things that we do a lot with that on those homes is we'll buy them typically at a 90 to 93% discount or 93% of value. And we'll take that discount and we'll either, we can either turn around and resell it or we'll bring that home into our rental line. And typically, rather than resell, we've, our goal is to accumulate as many investment properties as we can. So often, more often than not, we'll take that home in and then into the rental line and then use that as an investment property if it's a fit for our, for our portfolio. When you're purchasing the property at 90 or 93% of fair market value, are you also taking a commission? Typically, we will take a commission, yes. It's, um, you know, a lot of times it depends on what the scenario it is. What I've always tried to do is be as fair for that seller as we can. We will tell the seller. We, we will try to sell it first on the open market. Our goal is not to buy every house. That's not our goal. Our goal is to sell it on the open market. But if we're not able to do that, it's just a backup plan. And typically what will happen is the seller will come to us and say, hey, why don't you buy it? We think at this point we want you to go ahead and buy the house. So then we'll sit down and hammer out the terms, whatever whatever it is that they're needing to accomplish. And if it's a work for them, if it works for them, works for us, we buy it. If it doesn't, then we go on to a different program. So it's just a, it's just a safety net or an, another option for the seller. When you purchase the property from the seller in this program, are you purchasing all the properties yourself or do you have a pool of investors that you're using to make those purchases? No, no. We purchase those for, our, for ourselves. Could you give us a, a big picture? How many homes do you think that you're purchasing under your guaranteed sell program per year? I would say that that number probably would be anywhere from three to three to five. So three to five sales, do you have any idea how many transactions you think you've been part of because you offer that safety net? Mike, I will say to you that there's been a tremendous amount of people that have called our office. I don't know that I can tell you how many per se per year, but I would say that that number could be anywhere from 
10 to 20% of our production is based on people that have heard about us or that have called us for the interview because they've heard of that program and they want to know how it works. And even though we're, we're interviewing with other agents, oftentimes it's two, three, four agents that we're competing with, that'll give us an edge that they feel like, well, at least we have a backup plan. If the home doesn't sell, then we can turn around and sell it to them. So it, it, it has been very important in our company to make the phone ring and also to get our name out there because we promote that quite heavily on the radio as well. On the guaranteed sell program, do you have any type of limitation on the price or the type of property that you're willing to put into that program? Yes, we do, Mike, and that's a very good question. We do put a limitation on the type of home. It needs to be a a single-family home. It can be a single residential home. It could be a townhome. It can be a condo. But it's something, what we're looking for is it's something that's going to be a fit into our portfolio as well. Something like a manufactured home, we do not accept. Um, there is a, a cap on the sales price. We go up to, I think it's 175000 is our cap. We can opt to extend that if we decide to, but we, when we explain the program or when we advertise the program, we, we, we have a cap on it because obviously the more expensive the home, the harder it's going to be to sell and also the harder it is going to be to rent and make that investment return. Well, Sid, I'd like to switch gears here for a minute. I know that you you do something that most people don't. Most real estate agents out there, they fail to plan for retirement and the future. And I know that you have a plan in place. Could you please tell us about your retirement and future plan? When I got into real estate, the reason I got into real estate was for the investment side because what I saw was I saw a lot of agents that were older agents been in the business for a long, long time. And I know a lot of those agents were working not because they wanted to work, but because they had to work. They had a certain lifestyle that they had become accustomed to. They had a nice house, a membership at the country club. Uh, they had nice new cars, but they had to generate X amount of dollars every month. So they didn't really have any money set aside. They were just you know, producing and then that money would be gone. And then next month they're doing the same thing. So I looked at that and I thought, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be there. I don't want to have to work when I'm older. I don't want to have to be able, forced to do anything. I'm very comfortable working, but I want to have a plan where my investments are producing for me. It's wake up money. I wake up every morning, and those investments are producing money for me. So my plan has been to invest in real estate. And then I use, that's my retirement. Those units uh, have a plan. We're pretty aggressive on a payout. In other words, to pay off those investments as quickly as we can. So then that money is coming in every month. And uh, there's our retirement. Uh, we've even uh, gone as far as ear tag some of those properties for uh, education for children, for our children. And we'll just take you know three or four units, however many units we need. And the income from those units will go to pay for colleges. So I think the biggest mistake as a whole in the industry we make is that we don't invest in real estate. something that we know, it's something we understand, but yet when we get a, a nice investment property or a single-family home or a townhome or something that you go, that's a nice, clean property, would make a great income-producing property. We go around, we get on the phone, we start calling people that, who we think that might work for. And I can remember early on in my career doing that and thinking, 
calling about 10 people on a property that I had listed, and I thought, this is a great piece of property. And one person would tell me, well, this is wrong with it. And the next person I'd call and say, well, this is what's wrong with it. And the next person would tell me, this is what's wrong with it. And I thought, you know, baloney. There's nothing wrong with that property. I'll buy it. And I started doing that, and that's kind of been the direction we've taken since there, Mike. When you're selecting a property to invest in, what does that selection process look like? One of the things, first things we look at, Mike, is location. Is, a, is there going to be an area that's going to continue to appreciate? We've all heard in real estate, location, location, location. Well, that's, that's a very true statement. If it's in a bad area, I'm never going to get a good client or a good renter. So one of the first things we look at is, is it an area that's going to continue to appreciate and always be in demand? Next thing I look at is, what's it going to cost me to get into it? Oftentimes, uh, we have owners that say, you know, I want to sell my home. Do you have a mortgage? No, I don't have a mortgage. And I say, well, what are you going to do with your money when you, when you sell it? I don't know. Put it in the bank. Well, what do you make at the bank? Well, we make 1% or 2% on it. I say, well, what if I give you your asking price? I'll give you X amount of dollars down, and I'll make you payments. So you, what they're looking for is a steady paycheck coming in every month. And that makes it easier for me to buy. I don't have closing costs. I don't have as many issues as if I went to get the conventional financing. So if I have that, that's a, that's a no-brainer to me. That's, I'll, I'll work around that module as it uh, makes it easier for me to get into the property. Third thing I look at is, is the property going to generate enough income to pay for itself? If the answer is no, then I probably don't want that property. If the answer is yes, then we try to figure out if all the stars line up, everything works out, then we, then we move on to the next step. So this is one of the top three things we look at. Let's talk for a minute about that cost. It sounds like you're doing a lot of seller carryback financing. When you do that, how are you typically structuring that? What does the typical deal look like? How much are you putting down? How much is the owner carrying back as far as a percentage of the value? That depends on the owner and what they want. Uh, we'll go anywhere as low as five and as high as 20. So uh, kind of what, what, what they're needing. Sometimes they need a certain amount of cash or they may have a, a small equity line that they need to pay off. So we do quite a bit of that, but we don't exclusively just work with owner carries. We'll also do conventional loans and cash out. Uh, one of the other things we're looking for is the condition of the property. We pride ourselves in if we have three or four homes in a subdivision, we pride ourselves and we don't want anybody to be able to tell or dif- differentiate if the rental properties from the properties that are owned by owners. So we pride ourselves in keeping the properties very well maintained. That's from the landscaping to anything the home needs. As far as the maintenance, we're right on top of that. We want to keep those properties in as good a condition as we can. It sounds like you prefer to own your rental property in an area where there are a lot of owner-occupied properties. Is that true? That is true. That is true, Mike. And there's a certain amount of benefit for that because the renters don't want to be in an area that looks like a rented neighborhood or a rundown neighborhood. Our tenant that we're looking for is preferably a senior because they they like a lot of long-term leases. We do have some leases in our portfolio that are 10-year 10 10 leases, and then they've, those 10 years have run out, and then they renew. So we do a lot of that. We want, uh, I 
again, the area to look very nice. I want the home to look very nice, and then we can draw a good tenant. But what I found is the better the property, the better the tenant I'm going to be working with. The more marginal property, the more marginal the tenant, the more issues I'm going to have in maintenance, more issues we're going to have about receiving payment, and all the horror stories that we hear go along with owning rental property. I can tell you we don't have a lot of uh, issues with our rental properties. I mean, we try to stay on top of the maintenance for example, like water heaters, we change out at 10-year intervals. We have kind of a schedule of things that we're doing. We inspect the properties once a year. We get in the attics. We get in the crawl spaces. We're doing a lot of preventive maintenance so we don't have that call that everybody talks about. My toilet plugged up at 2 in the morning and I got this phone call. So the idea is to get good tenants, good properties, and have a good investment that's going to generate money and pay for itself. Let's talk a a few more minutes about financing. People get nervous about financing. And I want to go back to, you talked about seller carry financing, the owner carrying back some of the paper. You said you would put down 5 to 20% uh, in a typical scenario. What are the interest rates on that remaining balance? How is that typically structured, the remaining balance as far as the term, the interest rate, any other issues in that financing that you're normally seeing? Again, we kind of leave that up to um, the owner, but typically we'll say 5 to 6%, and we're probably a 15 to 20-year term. So what I will typically look at is I'm trying to look at what kind of income that property is going to generate from rent and then what it's going to cost me to own it. So what I'm looking at is try to keep those numbers as close to the, each other as they can. In other words, if the property, if we're paying more for the property, then we're going to pay a lower interest rate and a, we're going to ask for a lower rate and a longer term to make the income offset the expense. So that's typically our scenario right there on an owner carry back. Do those typically have a balloon payment due before the end of the amortization term, or are you tying those together where the term is the same as the amortization? We do not do a balloon payment. When you start doing balloon payments, you're starting to ask for trouble because you don't know what the market's going to be doing at the end of that balloon. In other words, if we'd have done that in 2007 when the market was great, we got into that tough market, we had balloons, banks were not wanting to finance investment property at that time. That could have been disastrous for us. So we do a straight line amortization. One of the things we do do is we will pay extra on the notes to try to pay them off earlier. But typically, the person we're working with is saying, you know, I just want that steady money coming in every month. I just need to know that I've got $1,000 coming in every month or whatever that amount is that you know I can bank on. And one of the things we really pride ourselves in is never once have we been late on a payment, and we always pay on time in the first of the month. And what I find is the people that do invest with us oftentimes will come back. So in other words, the scenario might be we sell someone's house, they take the money, they put it in the bank, and then they may come back and say, you know, we have X amount of dollars, whether that's 50 to 150 or 100,000. We just did one recently with a client that said, I have $100,000. You know, would you be interested in using this money, investing this money? So what we'll do then is we'll take a property that we have that's framed there. Typically, it's a single family. They always are in a first position. So they'll advance the 100,000. We give them security in the property of at least 20% equity, so the property's got to be worth at least 120 or more on 100,000. 
And then what we'll do is set it up, let's say, 20 years or 15 years, and typically it's that 5% rate. They're getting 5%, and instead of having their money sitting at the bank making 1% or 2%, we're paying 5 or 6%, whatever the rate is, on that term. What I have found is clients that do that with us once will oftentimes come back. I had one client that I think had as many as 14 notes with us. And now I've always said that people that deal with us once that way will come back to us. I would say probably five or six clients that have done at least six to eight transactions the way I just described. Because they feel like it's very safe. It's a first deed of trust position. They look at the properties before we start, say, yes, that's very safe. I feel good about it. And away we go. They're happy and I'm happy. And then we'll take that money and go buy something else or maybe buy two or three properties with that money. So the goal is, what we're trying to do is accumulate as many properties as quickly as we can because I feel like in our area, we're going to see growth and appreciation. We know things cost more every year. And I believe as this area continues to grow, there's going to be more demand for rental properties. And that's, that's our retirement plan. The other thing we do a lot of times is we may pull equity out of a unit that's paid for through a bank and then use that if they want conventional finance, we'll pull, pull money out of a unit that's paid for, take, use that as a down payment, buy another property through the bank. So we're constantly moving money around in and out of these properties. Sib, when you're acquiring properties, have you ever assumed an old loan from one of these folks and taking over their old loan and then maybe put a seller carry on top to finish out any equity? No, no, we don't do any assumptions, Mike. And in a scenario like you're describing, what we would either do, put enough money down to clear the bank out and then have the owner carry back at that point or just get conventional finance and do the loan, a uh, conventional loan on the property. Don't, don't get into the assumptions. No, I have not. So, Sid, it sounds to me like the majority of the properties that you're purchasing have a high equity position. They have a very small loan or no loan at all. Is that correct? No. No. It just depends more on the property, Mike. It could be a property that does have a lot of equity in it. That, that's more appealing to me because if I can save four or $5,000 on closing costs, that's four or $5,000 more I can offer the, the seller for the price. But even if it has a full mortgage on it and it's, it meets the other criteria and we've got money available, we need to go somewhere, then we would step in and buy it. Sid, have you run into a limitation on conventional financing where you cannot get more than X number of loans? You know, that number keeps changing over the years, but say 12 loans or 14 loans or eight loans. Have you run into that limitation yet? And how have you handled that? Yes, Mike, we have run into that. And I think the count that we were seeing was anything after four and last I heard was six. So Basically, if I go to the bank now to buy a property, I, I, what they would call a, a non-conforming conventional loan, which means the rate's a little bit higher. So that's one of the things that we factor in when we're looking at the property and the price and the cost and the rate. So again, non-conforming makes it a little harder. That's harder for me to purchase because, it's, again, the rate's higher. That's why if somebody has owner financing and they're saying, I, I would like this option, it makes that property a lot more flexible, a lot, e- lot easier for us to get into. So I typically what, I happen, what happens is I'll find a scenario that I think we can make it work and then we try to figure out the formula for making it work, whether whatever 
type of finance that is. So in other words, if I've, if I've got the owner carry finance, then I'll make some concessions on the location and the condition. If I have financing that's conventional finance, then I'm going to be a lot more strict on price, a lot more strict on location and condition of that property. On the non-conforming conventional loan scenario, what are you typically seeing right now as far as what percentage are you having to put down? And you said the rate is higher. How much higher, how many percentage points higher are you seeing that rate than what someone could get on, say, an owner-occupied home? Pretty substantial. Um, owner-occupied, I think we're presently at 3.5%. If I go to the bank today to borrow money, I'm probably going to be closer to that 5 5.5%. As far as putting money down on these investment properties, what are the banks requiring? How much down? Banks typically will ask us 20% down. When the market went down, they bumped that number all the way up to 30%, and now they've backed off of that, and we're back to the 20% mark. The banks will loan me money now on investment property with 20% down. Sid, it sounds to me like your goal, your objective is to structure your cash flow on this property. So you're estimating the rent, and from that, you can determine how much cash flow can go out to servicing these debts. Are you only purchasing properties when they have a positive cash flow? Well, that's always the goal. One of the things that I want to mention to you, Mike, is when the market started declining in 2007, November 15th of 2007, between 2007 and let's say 2012, we purchased a lot of property because we had a lot of sellers that were very motivated to sell and were a lot more forgiving in the terms. In other words, they were sitting on a property, they it might be an older couple, and they're saying, we have equity in it. We bought a lot of properties that, that way because owners felt there was, they didn't have any other option available to them. In other words, we could step in and make the numbers work. Uh, typically, we will always want to see a positive cash flow. Um, if it's somebody that we're feeling like we need to help out or whatever the scenario is, we will let that we'll come off of that a little bit. But one of the things that I learned when the market crashed is we always have to be pre-planning ahead. We never know what's coming down the road. We were fortunate that we had we had been planning and planning for that day and we had a lot of money saved in reserve and it was able to get us through that. In addition to that, we were able to borrow against our other rental properties that we had paid off and pull equity out as we needed them to cash flow other things to make, make everything work. So you want to be really careful with that about buying something that's got a negative cash flow. Sid, how are you finding these properties? Are you simply bumping into them in the course of your business, or are you actively going out and looking for rental properties to purchase? We promote the, the guaranteed buyout. So we have a lot of people that call us and say, hey, will you, would you be interested in buying our house? So we say, well, let us come out and look at the property. So I may come out and look at the property and I look at it and say, you know, this is what we think the property's worth. We can put it on the market. Uh, if the property doesn't sell, we have this option to, to, on the buyout. Or what happens a lot of time is uh, people may not have heard about the buyout program. We've listed the property. It doesn't sell. They call our office about four months later and say, hey, we really want to figure out some way to sell our house. And the next thing you know, we're stepping in to buy it. And it, it can be a single family home. It can be a commercial piece of property. 
uh, if the numbers work and we feel like there's a market for it, we're, all, we're always trying to figure out a way to make it work, if you will. Sometimes you have to, you have to be a little more creative to figure out how to put it all together as a package. So we try to look at it from all directions and say, is this something that could work? It's got to work for the sellers. It's got to work for the buyers, myself, and or it's got to work for the investors. And one of the things that we always try to do is make sure that we do what we say we're going to do and we never leave anybody hanging. Uh, so if we say we're going to do it, we've got to be able to do that. Sid, you also mentioned that your objective is to pay down those mortgages as quickly as possible and that you'll often make excess payments to do so. Do you have an objective for how quickly you want to pay off the mortgage or is it just anytime you have extra cash, you put it towards those debts? What we do, Mike, is I have a spreadsheet that I work off of and one of the things that I'll find is we're always paying a little bit extra on every property we own. But we may have a property that's got, let's say it's got a pretty good payment. Let's say it's got a $1,200 payment on it. And let's say that property only has like $25,000 owing on it. What we might do is we may bump that property up. We may pay an extra four or $500 a month on that property to pay that note off. Because then I can turn around and go borrow against that. What I try to do, I'm, I'm just looking here at our portfolio right now. And I would say, without counting these, we have... I'm going to say 15 properties that are free and clear without, without mortgages. So to me, that's just a huge savings account that's sitting there. And when I need cash or somebody calls me and says, hey, I've got $100,000, that uh, can you use it? Then I look at these properties and say, well, what matches up? What do I have here that's a $150,000 property that I could take their money invest that and secure them with this property that's free and clear that they now have $50,000 in equity in. So that's why I'm always trying to pay those properties off so now I have more borrowing power. Plus, if the market goes the other way, when I sit down with a banker and I need to borrow money, I can say, well, I've got all these properties. Can I borrow against one of them? And the banks will always loan me money in that scenario. So yes, we're always trying to pay off properties. I can't tell you how many properties we've paid off and then refinanced, pulled money back out of those and bought three more properties, paid it off again, pulled money again, bought three more properties. So we're always trying to figure out how we can continue to move forward as quickly as we can. But again, I think the most important thing is you need to treat people like you want to be treated because the key to making this work, especially with the investors, is they want to feel like anytime they have extra money, they're calling you to say, here's the money. I want you to take it and invest it. You've taken very good care of me never been late on the payments. You've always done what you're going to do. I want to invest with you again. And that's our goal because that's a win for them. That's a win for us. So you're taking a private investor's money, you're borrowing that money and then securing it against one of your free and clear properties with a deed of trust and giving them some security. I assume also lowering your interest rate because it's less risky and you're taking those funds and reinvesting them to purchase more properties. How are you finding these investors that want to get, hand over $100,000 to you? Are you actively going out and looking for that money or at this point is your reputation just pulling it in? The people find us people will say, well, I was talking to so-and-so. They said they've been investing with you for five, 10 years. Uh, I mentioned early on in the start of this interview that my broker was Dick Irwin. 
Well, even Dick Irwin is investing with me. My accountant is investing with me. So the key to that is treat those people with kid gloves. You never want the payments late. Always do what you say you're going to do. Always put them in a good equity position. Just treat them like you would want to be treated, and then they come back and they tell somebody else, and then those people come in. These folks that are investing with you, are they investing their their free cash outside of any of their retirement accounts, or are they also investing funds that are, say, in a self-directed IRA? Mike, what we're finding, a lot of these people have had IRAs that have come due and they say, well, the IRAs aren't paying well. A lot of these people have money in savings accounts that are not paying well. And if we're paying five or six and they're getting, I don't know what they're getting, I don't know, one, one and a quarter maybe, uh, they're saying, well, I can do so much better with you and I feel like it's even safer than where I was before. A lot of these people have had money in, in the stock market, got burnt very badly there and say, you know, I want something. They say to me, Mike, is I want something that's going to be safe, consistent, and I can count on and that's exactly what we're looking for. And if I take care of them and I do what I say I'm going to do, they will come back to me nine times out of ten and say, I have more money, I have another IRA, or I have uh, the stock that I'm selling, I'll take that money and invest it with you, and let's do the same thing again. You also mentioned that the tenant and the quality of the tenant is very important for you because that's where your cash flow is coming from. You said you like seniors in these long-term leases, 10 years or longer. How, how are you finding people that want to be in a 10-year lease and how do you set it up so that you can keep up with inflation? Not all the people are 10-year leases. A small percentage of that of our tenants are. Most majority of our tenants are one to three years on a residential, but what we do see, and there's kind of a trend, I mentioned this area is kind of a retirement community, and what we're finding is a lot of people that are maybe in their late 60s, early 70s are saying, look, I've got all this money tied up in my house, it doesn't do me any good. In other words, I can't afford to travel, I can't afford to do what I want, I could sell my house, lease, I could lease a property, lease a property from us, we'll do a long-term lease, And I don't really worry about the appreciation factor because I know my payment stays the same. So I don't have a vacancy factor, so I don't have to worry about that. So I feel like I'll take that chance. Even though I know rents are going to go up and even though I know property taxes are going to go up and even though I know insurance is going to go up, I don't have any risk because we don't have that unit coming empty. We don't have the unit sitting. We don't have that that extra maintenance that's required when people move in and move out, the most damage is done to a rental when you're moving in and moving out. You know, they're putting up their pictures, they're tracking mud into the house, they're doing all these things, and then when they move out, you do it the same thing again. The next person comes in, now I've got the maintenance of filling the holes, dealing with all those issues. I'd much rather take my chances on a long-term lease where they're not going to be moving, even if my rate is low, then have that vacancy factor and all those extra repairs, plus it's also a lot easier to manage. I don't have the turnover. Another thing we look for, Mike, with these rentals is the more rentals we have in one particular location, the better. What I found out early on, Mike, was if we had rentals all over town, whenever we were doing maintenance, we were driving all over town to do maintenance. So what we found is if we could have four rentals in the same area, we drive over once and service four or five rentals. 
So that is another factor when we're picking which property and if the property fits for us. Mike, one other thing I want to mention is in order to try to accumulate properties in the same location, what we're finding is we couldn't find enough properties in the same location. So what we did is we went out and we bought their land. And then we started building through our own group internally. We started building rental properties. Then we could build them the way we wanted. And then we would have like 15 in an area. So that we found that was a big help in maintaining the properties as well. The more properties we had in one area, a lot easier when we were doing lawn care, a lot easier when we were doing lawn maintenance, a lot easier when we were servicing filters. All the things that we do for maintenance, we could cover so much more ground and just cover so much more quickly than driving around town and servicing all these properties. So that's another thing to look for in selecting a property. You mentioned earlier in your property selection that you like a single-family home, a condo, or a townhome. When you're building properties, are you building single-family homes, or are you starting to move into a multi-unit where you build an apartment building? What we did, Mike, is we were building a single-family, well, actually, there were townhomes, which all areas of the country have different reference or different definition of what a townhome, but we call it a party wall, patio home, manor home. They're one level, but they have a common wall. So in other words, a lot can be divided. We can get two properties on one lot. Again, better cash flow, two properties side by side, less maintenance. So that's our, it's either a single family or a townhome. Uh, we don't get into the four or five or six unit apartments. We've, we um, have learned that uh, we do, we have in the past managed those and we found out we get a different quality of tenant than what we're used to. We've had the best success with the single families and the townhomes. What we're looking for there is an open floor plan, uh, oversized garages so they can have extra storage in there. They can have the car in the garage and additional area in the front, typically about 10, 12 feet in front of their cars where if they have extra things that don't fit in that they're moving, they can stack up there. And then just an open floor plan. We try to make it as conducive and tenant-friendly as we can. The other thing we've tried to target too is we do a lot of work with seniors and we actually built townhomes that were one level with no steps, handicap accessible. That was a good campaign that worked out very well for us and that seniors don't move as much. Uh, they don't have uh, the abuse in a house that you'll have with a typical family with three or four kids and uh, that's worked out very well. And we did promote that promote that, and there's some of our marketing that we had rentals that were designed for seniors and it's worked out quite well for us. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Well, Sid, would you mind disclosing to us and telling us a a little bit about your personal portfolio, what you've built up? It sounds like you've been doing this for many years. Let's say how many units do you have in your current portfolio? Presently, Mike, I think uh, I own, I think it's 85 units. I think the last time I counted was 85 units. Our goal is to get to 100 units. That's, uh, we call it 100 doors. My wife has promised me a 100-door party when we get to 100 doors. 
So and that's our, that's my big goal. 85 units. Give us some, some numbers around that. How much rent would that be coming in each month? I think presently we're seeing about 75000 a month coming in from the rentals. That's a gross number. And of course, out of that, we have, have to make principal payments, interest payments, taxes, insurance. But we track that pretty closely. To back into that question a little bit, Mike, is what, what my thought is, I've always tried to figure out how much money would a person need to retire. And what, from what I've read and what I understand, it's two and a half times what you think it should be. So well, the way I've looked at it is I've always felt that once I got the properties paid for, if I had $100,000 coming in a month, I could service any all the property taxes and insurance very, very comfortably, probably at 10% of that. And then the rest of that would be available for maintenance and repairs and vacancy factor. And I can live quite well on that. Or I could put five or six kids through school with that. Or I could take that money and use it for something else. But uh, I think that uh, if you look at most businesses, you know, when they, what happens is they're working, they're working, they're working. But when they get ready to retire, they don't have anything to sell. I mean, they have their business, but, you know, what's your business worth? Because once you leave, that might be, that may be a different value. So let's say it's a contractor. Well, what does he have to sell? Well, he's got his tools to sell. Well, that's not enough to keep us going. If we don't have a 401k or some kind of a, some kind of retirement, we've got to have something coming in. We've got to have a steady stream of income coming in to maintain that lifestyle. So that's how I've always looked at these rentals is that's my steady income stream. That's my retirement plan. Every month, this money comes in. And then I have this money to do whatever I want to do. What should somebody estimate for all the cost of running or managing a property? What percentage of the rent is a general rule? I know it'll be different in all areas, but just a, there's got to be a general rule that you use. You know, so is it like 25 or 30%? Mike, what we figure is we're going to have about a 28% cost to maintain that property. That would be, that would be in taxes, property taxes, insurance, and then we're going to have a maintenance factor and a, a maintenance issue factor to calculate in there is included in that, as well as a vacancy factor. It'll be about 28%. Even if you own the property outright, you still have costs of managing and maintaining that property. It sounds like it's around just a rough estimate, somewhere around 28%. But that still leaves a, a pretty healthy amount, 70 72% of the cash flow that comes every in every month at that point, once you have these these properties paid off, is going to be going to you each month. So so that's something to look forward to. Yes, it is, Mike. And the thing of it is, I mean, we've been doing this a long time, and the nice thing about this is you don't need this many properties. I mean, this just happened to evolve with me, but you can do the same thing with three properties or four properties or five properties. I mean, I'd say for the average person, if you had three to five properties, that's ample you know, you could, you'd be amazed what you can do with just that many properties. I mean, that could be your kid's education. That could be your retirement. After the kids are out of school, that money still keeps coming. It doesn't stop. It just still keeps coming in. So then you can say, okay, I paid for all the kids' education. Now we want to go do on this trip. Now we want to, now we want to start, uh, you know, whatever it is we want to do. Uh, you still have this steady stream of money coming in every month. 
And so let's go back to our original premise, the idea that a real estate agent needs to set up a retirement plan. And if they want to do it through real estate, what they can do is estimate how much money they would need to have coming in each month. And that would be 70% of the total amount of rent that they would need. So let's say that they need, well, we'll just keep the numbers real simple. If you need to have $7,000 a month coming into your household, that means you would have to have enough properties that bring in $10,000 a month in rent. And that gives you a goal to shoot for when you're in your acquisition stage. And then you do that and pay them all off. And by the time you pay them all off, you'll have your income stream. Does that sound about right, Sid? That is correct, Mike. And the other thing you got to remember is not only do you have the income stream, but you still have the property. In other words, you decide down the road, okay, now I, you know, maybe I don't want the rental properties anymore. Now you call me up, I buy the properties from you, and you still get the rental stream, and you don't own them for the next 20 years, so you don't deal with any of the vacancy factors, you don't deal with any of the maintenance issues, you don't deal with any of the issues, and you still got the same income stream coming in or more. So you get it both ways. And that's the benefit, and that's why people keep coming back and saying, hey, that works for me. I'll do that again. That works great. Sid, do you see that as one of your final plays way down the line is that uh, you pay off all these properties, they're free and clear, and at some point you would turn around and sell them on seller carryback financing to other people and just have an income stream? I do, Mike. That's actually something I say to people all the time is, well, right now, I'm borrowing from money from you and I'm paying you, but someday I hope to be on the other side of the table where I'm selling the property to somebody else and they're paying me that steady income stream and I can go do what I want to do. So yes, I do see that happening. That is part of the plan. Do you have a cushion percent that you want to keep in your portfolio? For instance, are you at at break even where all the money that comes in each month is exactly the amount of money that goes out? Or do you want it to be a positive cash flow or are you willing to accept a small negative cash flow? You know, where are you at on, on that total sum cash flow on these these rental investments? Mike, we always want to have that number be positive. Uh, if we didn't have the land we were carrying, that number would be a lot higher number. But uh, the other thing... I always want to do is I want to have at least a year worth of income sitting there in, in the event that the market goes down or the rental market gets a little tighter. I've got a lot of carrying time. So we have, we're sitting on a pretty good size of money that's just in savings that we're using in any event we need it. But we always want to see those units be a positive cash flow. Do you invest in other areas for your retirement? For instance, are you in the stock market? Do you have bonds? Do you invest in anything other than real estate? Mike, you've heard the saying that uh, never put all your eggs in one basket. You've heard that saying? Sure. I say put all your eggs in one basket and watch your basket. (laughs) So so we do have, Mike, just a little bit. I mean, we have um, some programs also set aside for the kids and a little bit, but no, the majority of ours is in real estate because I feel like when I talk to my stockbroker, I'm not really sure. I don't understand stocks. I don't have an interest in stocks. Uh, I don't understand bonds. I don't understand other investments, but this is an investment I can look at and go, I can, I can see it every day. I understand it. I'm, every day I'm watching the market, see if it's going up or down. 
If the market is going up, there's opportunity. If the market's going down, there's opportunity. There's always opportunity in real estate. You just got to figure out what it is and how to utilize that. And I think that's what we've tried to do with the investment properties because I feel like there's going to be a tremendous demand, even more demand for rental properties. And we're putting ourselves in a position that we can take advantage of that. So I think that you want to invest in things that you understand and you have an interest in it. I'm involved in an investment club. They meet once a month here at my office. I can barely drag myself to those meetings because I don't enjoy it. It's boring to me. But the minute somebody starts talking about real estate, I have an interest. And so the key to anything is do what you like and you're going to be good at what you like to do. And I think that's the key to it. These properties that you own in your personal portfolio, what's the average value of one of those properties? Mike, the average of those properties typically runs about 150000 some more, some less, but that's probably a pretty good average. And that's just slightly above the average price in your area. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. So these are average homes or slightly above average. They're not luxury homes. They're, they're not low-end homes. They're average homes, just a little bit above average. That's exactly it, Mike, and that's a really good point you bring up, and that is we're not looking for the bottom, and we're not looking for the top. We're looking for everything in between because that's a bigger margin. There's going to be a lot more people that fit that margin in between, and uh, that margin in between is good tenants. People are going to pay their bills on time to take care of their properties just like they have their home, and we don't want to get too high because if we get too high, then the numbers don't start working. Then we start getting a negative cash flow, and that's not our goal. The nice thing about these properties, Mike, is if we decided that we wanted to sell any of these properties, I can guarantee you I can sell any one of these homes within four months. Within your average time, your average days on the market, they would be gone? Yes. Mike, one last thing, and I think we touched on it, but one of the things that's important to make in this work that I think people miss it is I call it they rape the property, and I think that's a huge mistake. What do you mean by that? What I mean by raping the property is they take out, but they never put back. So what's important is we are very almost anal about maintaining these properties. We go in, if they need carpet, we replace it. If they need painted, we replace it. We go in and we change the filters to the best filter we can get, a four-inch, media, what they call a media filter. So there's less maintenance, less dust in the air keep the properties very well maintained. They've got nice cabinetry, nice countertops. Garages are good. We want those properties to look like, have pride of ownership and look like the owner's living in that home. That's our goal, and that's what makes it work. So we're constantly maintaining these properties to keep them as nice as we can. One quick question on that that came to my mind was, so these are above average homes. So I'm guessing that most of them for the houses, as an example, would be at least three bedroom, two bath and a two car garage. Is that, is that the kind of home that you're looking at? That's very typical, Mike. Three bedroom, two bath, one level home, uh, anywhere from 13 to 1700 square feet. Typically about 1650 is about high as we go. One of the things I wanted to piggyback off of what we just said was we talked about maintaining those properties. Keep in mind that even though we're maintaining those properties, that's why we don't have a problem with the maintenance, if that makes sense. In other words, the managing is easy if the properties are well-maintained. My lease is only as good as the tenant I have. So if I get a bad tenant, I've got a bad lease. 
So the better tenant I have, the better lease I have, the better they're going to maintain the property. So if I have a good property, I will draw that tenant. If I have a marginal property, I'm going to attract that bottom line tenant that's going to have more credit issues, harder time paying their rent, and they're, they're not going to maintain that property to the standard I want to see it. Years ago, I spoke to a real estate investor who had an interesting trick. When he was going to rent out to a tenant, he would, he would have X number of uh, prospects come through, and he would find the one he, or two that he liked the best, and he always made a point to visit, to go and visit that tenant at their current residence and look inside to see how they were maintaining the condition of the property. Do you do anything like that? We do, Mike. We do, do do that as well. We also want to see what their car looks like and how, how they're taking care of the inside and the outside of the car. But one of the things that we've done in the last year or so is we are now, we subscribe to a company that is getting us a, a very intensive background check on these people. We get their FICA scores, um, any infractions they have on the, with the law, different things. And we've got a pretty good snapshot of who we're talking to. And then one of the things we also do always is whoever we rent to, I want to sit down and meet them because if we make a mistake, then we're stuck with that mistake for the next year or two or three, however long the lease is with them. So I think meeting the tenants personally, uh, getting to know people, I think the more you do that, the better you're able to read people. As we said, looking at their cars, looking at their homes. And then once you get a good tenant, just treat them like you'd want to be treated. You know, Take care of them just like you'd want to be taken care of and take care of those properties like you'd want your property taken care of. And then that's what makes the whole program work is good properties means good tenants. So did you mention there was a company that you're getting these in-depth background reviews from? Do you remember the name of that company? It's Propertyware. It's a software program, and then we subscribe to Propertyware, and then Propertyware does this background check for us. It's very comprehensive. Prior to that, we were using a company, and they would just pull up our state. But we pulled up the background check on the prospective tenant and found out that it was good, but come to find out he had a record in another state. So now we do a a search for the entire United States. So if he's come from another state, we're able to see what his history's been. Well, Sid, you've got a lot of properties, these 85 properties. Are you managing those properties yourself, or are you sourcing that out and having someone else do the management? Mike, we, uh, we manage those properties ourselves. We have um, the division here in our office uh, that we do that, and we just, we've just we hired some uh, people that manage with me. Uh, I'm very involved day-to-day from the maintenance to, uh, to the repairs to uh, uh, dealing with the tenants. And what I find is, again, if we take care of the people that we're working with, those, uh, we have very little issues. And we, I think things sail along pretty well. And as long as we have good properties and good tenants, we have very few issues. Do I understand correctly that you, you took the experience of, of managing your own properties and you now manage other people's properties as well? Yes, Mike. What happened was, um, I mentioned November 15th of 2007, the market just stopped here. And what we found is we were, we were seeing people that were living in their homes and they bought in the market at the peak or prior to the peak. And then they'd call us up and say, you know, I've got a, my job here is, uh, is over. The company 
have been able to make it. We're relocating to Boise or whatever the scenario was. And they said, we, we need to sell our property. So I'd look at their property and say, well, what do you owe? Well, we owe 200000 What's our property worth? They would ask me. And I'd say, well, it's only worth 175 in time we add closing costs and brokerage fees to that. You're upside down. It's going to cost you money to sell your property. So we don't have any money. And they'd say, to me, well, we'll just let the bank have it. I said, we can't do that. So we thought about it and thought about it, and we finally decided that we were going to start managing other people's properties. I'd never done that prior to that. So we started a property management division, and we now have, I think, 55 to 60 properties in that property management division. And the thinking was, we're already doing it anyway. We're already managing our, at that time, I don't know what it was, how many properties we had, 75 or whatever it was. I thought, you know, what's another 10 or 15 units? And what we found is we learned a lot from that. Uh, it has been a um, good little income stream for us when the market was down. What I've also learned from that is there's, um, we're pretty selective about who we manage. We don't manage every property. Uh, if it's not a good, clean property that's very similar to our portfolio, we, we won't take it on. A lot of times what happens too, what we're starting to see now, some of these people are, that we were able to save are now selling those properties and uh, coming out, where before they would have had to come out of pocket with money or give it back to the bank. Now they're selling them and making, actually having, realizing proceeds at closing, which just makes me feel very good. I hate to see anybody lose any money in real estate. So um, that has been a, a very successful campaign for us. So it sounds like the properties in your property management division that are other people's properties, those people were upside down. You're not going out and actively looking for investors to manage their properties, correct? No, no, we don't. Typically what they would be is it would be somebody, as I said, that was selling their property or recently we just had an investor came, came to us and um, an attorney had referred him to us, a local attorney here in town, and said, if, you, if you're going to be buying these for investment, then if you're not going to be managing them, you want to call the Palm Beach Property Management because they do an excellent job and we were able to bring those on. So I think the word of mouth is probably our best form of advertising. Uh, again, that's why it's important. Even if you're managing somebody's property, you want to take care of that property like it were your own. You know, We go as far as even just do the lawn mowing on those property management properties so that we want to have that pride of ownership so we can get that good quality tenant and we can control what's going on at that property. Well, Sid, I, I've gone really deep into retirement planning and real estate investing, combining the two. Thank you so much for, for walking down that path with us. What I would like to do is switch gears for a few minutes and talk about your sales side of your business and how you're doing there. Well, I'd like to talk about your past client and sphere of influence business because it's my understanding that that's uh, over half of your business is coming from that source. Do you maintain a database of your past clients and sphere of influence? And if so, how many people are in that database? We do have a database, Mike, and I think there's probably uh, 12,000 people or more in that database. We do use Top Producer, which has a really good um, program for tracking prospects, uh, tra- tracking our clients, and then also post clients after after we've worked with somebody and then we call it a drip campaign, a drip campaign that keeps following up with those people, Mike. Sid, the 12,000 people that are in your database, what groups of people is that? I, I assume that's your past clients and sphere of influence 
break that down for us. How do people get into this database? Who are they? Mike, we track anybody that uh, if you call in on one of our properties and are working with one of our agents, we, we track that as well. So they, we track them until they buy or die. Uh, we have people that have bought properties from us in the past. We found that by tracking those people, they will repeat back to us or they will refer back to us. And we've had good success with uh, past referral clients and past clients coming back to our company. Sid, how do you stay in touch with your past clients and sphere of influence? Mike, prior to the uh, decline in the market, we were very aggressive on our sphere of influence. In fact, we were sending correspondence every two weeks. Slowly starting to rebound. We haven't completely revamped that back up, but we will be as the market starts to pick up and we feel like uh, that, that we'll be able to draw more out of that. We will we'll see an increase in that, but we do uh, mailers, we do a lot of emails, and then um, just, just follow up different things. We have drip campaigns that we send out to, to our sphere. Do you make phone calls to your past clients, and if so, how often? We do, Mike. Uh, we were calling our past clients every 30 days, and then we would, uh, that would be the initial call, and it was after they sold the property, and then it was 90 days, and then every four months, six months after that, excuse me. And uh, right now, we're, we don't have the staff to, to do that, so we'll probably be revisiting that in the next year or so as we see the market continue to progress. Do you have any past client parties or events that you throw? We do, Mike. We do a client appreciation party. We do that once a year. And we typically, we, would, we started doing that at the park, and we would have a, just a hamburgers, hot dogs, and watermelon, potato salad. We'd provide food and entertainment. Uh, we were doing that off-site. Uh, we finally had moved that on to site and had a lot better success with that because you're bringing back people back to the office. Our office fronts on a, right across from a shopping center, so we have a lot of people that uh, see these folks when they're out here in front of us. So that's been a good program for us as well. Sid, do you ask for referrals directly from your past clients and sphere of influence, or is it indirect? Yes, Mike. I think it is important to ask, and uh, I think, but you can ask in an indirect way. We always grade ourselves at closing how we did with the clients, or we have the client grade us at closing, and we ask them to to fill out a little summary and tell us how we did because we're always trying to improve our business. Mike, we've learned a lot from that. Yeah, we've learned that sometimes we get speeding tickets and that's where we're uh, moving things along too quickly and they don't feel like they're in the loop. And so we, we learn from those speeding tickets and sometimes we have to slow down. And what we've learned to do is uh, match our personality to their personality. Uh, you've heard of the DISC, Mike. I'm sure you've heard of that. Sure. D's very direct, bottom line, give me the answer. Well, if they're a D, we've got to act like a D. If they're a C, we've got to slow down and talk to them and let them think about it and show them the data and they're a lot more comfortable with that. And then S's, you know, very, very much into the family. So we have, to, um, we have to talk their language, if you will. Sid, I understand you're getting referrals from your lender. How are you doing that? We do, Mike. We do receive a lot of referrals from our lender. Um, we also send um, all our business to basically one or two lenders that we work with that we've had good relationships with, depending on the, uh, the product they offer and the client that we're dealing with. So we try to match up who's the best match. 
And what we found is they, in turn, have people contact them and say, well, we want to buy a house, but we need to sell our house, and they'll contact us. The thing that we try to focus on, Mike, is we have learned that if we have the seller, we'll find the buyer. So whenever we're marketing or whenever we're trying to a campaign, we're trying to find the seller because if we get the product, then the buyer will call us off the product. So we advertise and market to the seller to find the buyer. Your marketing is all focused on finding seller leads with the understanding that if you get that seller lead, you start promoting that listing, you're going to find the buyers. Right. The buyers will call us at that point, Mike. We typically will carry anywhere from 100 to 150 listings always. And what we find is if we have the inventory, then the buyer will call off the inventory. If I don't have the inventory, then the buyers won't call us. So that's why we market more to the selling side to get the buyer to contact us. Do you do anything unique with your signs to generate the sign calls? Yes, Mike. What we do is we have um, post signs. And the reason we went with the post sign is, one, we wanted the sign to be the elevation of the car when the car was dry by. So in other words, eye level. So we, uh, we made an investment to, to get more expensive signs that were taller, that were eye levels, traffic would drive by. Uh, we have our advertisement on our sign, of course, but we also have a 24-hour hotline number, and the people can call on those properties 24 hours, and then we divide those leads up different times, different people, and then that's how the buyer contacts us when they're calling off the property. Then we try to get them into the property and then take them and pre-qualify them and get them into the home. Sid, I want to switch gears here. I want to talk about your team. I know you've got quite a few team members there. Could you list out your team members? We have four buyer specialists, four excellent buyer specialists. And of course, what they do is they work with the buyers. If a buyer contacts me on a property, I'm going to hand that lead off to the buyer specialist because I think they're going to do a buyer specialist is going to do a lot better job and that buyer is going to do a lot better service working with that buyer specialist than they will with me. We have four people that do that. We have one client care manager, and what that person does is when you list your property with us, we're going to guarantee you we're going to call you every two weeks, and then we're going to ask to sit down with you every 45 days to do a review, and we're going to give you a history of what's been happening on that property, how many hits we've had on our virtual tour, how many times people have called off the sign, how many people have called off the sign writer, how many times that property's been physically shown, how many times it's been pulled up in the MLS, and then I can tell you what our conversion ratio is from the time we've been pulled up. We know we want to hit about 33%, and our client care manager tracks that for us. We have an escrow manager that once the transactions come under contract or become pending, she deals with the day-to-day dealing with the inspection, scheduling the inspection, scheduling the appraisals, dealing with the, the repairs. We have a director of first impressions when you're walking in our office. That's the lady you meet at the front door. She will direct you where you need to go. We have a full-time bookkeeping position, and she deals with um, cash flow, money coming in, rents, deposits. Have a rental manager, coordinator, one person down there. We have two assistants in that department, and then we have one person that works at signage and deliveries, takes our pictures. Then we have six outside people that help us with some of the things that we're doing in our other, other organizations. So that's kind of a brief overview of who does what. You have your own independent company. Are you the broker or have you hired a supervising broker to run the brokerage? Yes, Mike. I am the broker of the company, yes. 
Sid, I know you're a big believer in systems. What can you tell us about systems? Systems are so important in order for us to do more each day. Everything we do here at the office is systematized, everything from the real estate division to the rental division to everything we do in our day-to-day life. I like to liken the comparison to Henry Ford, what he did to the automobile industry. Prior to Henry Ford, cars were being built, and what they would do is they'd build a car from scratch. Uh, they'd, they'd build, get the frame, they'd build the frame, and then they'd go out and build a starter and put the starter on, then they'd build the motor and put the motor on, they build the tires, put the tires on, and then that's how they built the car. It was very slow, very cumbersome, and none of the parts would interchange, so it just was not a cost-effective way to do business. Henry Ford came along and said, this doesn't make any sense. We need to assembly line this. So in other words, we're going to have a line, assembly line, and all the parts are going to be interchangeable, and we're going to be able to speed this process up substantially. And he would have one assembly line, and that assembly line may have four or five stops. And in one stop, they might put the motor in. Next stop, they put the fenders on. Next stop, on that same assembly line, they put the tires on. Next stop, they might paint the car. And we can do the same thing in our business. We have to figure out how to get the systems in place and try to make everything we do like an assembly line. Everything from running our real estate business, running our personal lives, we're able to cover so much more ground, so much more area, accomplish so much more doing it that way than we will if we try to do all these little pieces and try to figure out how to do it. If we can get everything just assembly line process, and sometimes what you have to do is you have to change that process, but you have to start with something. So start with something, even if it's two or three little steps, and then you can grow that and grow that and grow that. So I think that's a key to success in anything we do, whether that's real estate, rentals, investment, anything we do, our personal lives. Yes, and that's a huge help and to make us more productive each day. Sid, we hear a lot about systems, but I'm not sure that everybody has an understanding of what exactly that means. When you say systems, do you mean a checklist, some kind of manual that you use? What do you mean by a system? A system can be whatever you want it to be, Mike, but it has to be a system. So in other words, it, we do use checklists. Checklists are important. So in other words, if you're going to fly a plane, the pilot always has a checklist of certain things they do. They do that so nothing gets missed and everything gets done. The same thing is true in our everyday lives and our business. We need to have a checklist for everything we're doing. Your system can be as complicated as you want it to be or as simple as you want it to be. I say simple is the way to start. So start out with something like, this is how we put our files together. In our office, our files are all put together a certain way. Our real estate files have the contracts, all the contract paperwork on the, on the left side of the file. They're all attached in the file. On the right side is all the information on the seller, and their, um, all their information pertaining to their loan, et cetera, et cetera. It's all there. So if someone looks at the file, they know right to where to go for the utilities. They know right where to go for the contract. Pages are color-coded. So yellow sheet means the showing sheet. Blue sheet means the data sheet from the seller. Our files our manila colored for our real estate files. Our files for our properties that we own are red. Our files for property management are yellow. We use a lot of color coding because it's just so much easier if you're looking for a file, you know what color you're looking for. If there's half a dozen files in a stack or in a file drawer for that matter, you know what you're looking for. So systems can be anything you want them to be. But what I say to people is, 
make the system easy, and then you're always improving on that system. This is a certain way. This is how we do it here. McDonald's, you go into any McDonald's, they do it exactly the same way. The franchise makes that owner do it a certain way. There's a reason they do that. They can get production, and they can get quality control. The same thing is true in our business. That's how we get quality controls with systems. If everybody does it a different way, there is no way. It's just we all have to do it a certain way. Now, if all of us decide there's a better way to do this, I'm all over that. Let's improve the system, amend the system, change the system, but we still always have a system. And that's the key. Are you profitable? Yes, Mike. Our sales business is profitable. Sid, would you mind disclosing to us what your net profit margin is? Mike, I don't know that number. One thing I do want to say, one of the things that I've always done from very, very early in my career is once a month, I meet with my accountant. He comes in our office and we have a spreadsheet for every company and what that company's spent and what that company's brought in. And every month, we review that with him. He and I and the bookkeeper and my wife all sit down and look at those numbers. And he tells us, you know, you had a good month. This was your net this month. Uh, this is what you made in this company. 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 We're constantly looking at that. I haven't tracked that percentage, Mike. But I can tell you, we did have a profitable year this year. We've had a great year this year. And we do have a profit. Sid, what drives you? Mike, I, I like what I do. I really like what I do. I've always liked what I do. And um, real estate's my passion. Uh, I've met my best friends. I've met through real estate. My wife, I've met through real estate. Uh, everybody, the, my closest people to me, I've met through real estate. We're all said and done. It, it comes down to relationships and people and, and your family. And uh, I want to provide for my family. I want to provide for my kids' education. I want to, I want to have a good sphere of friends that are really good friends, which I do have, and I enjoy that. I like waking up in the morning with something to do and a challenge. I will say that uh, some of the things I'm most proud about are not real estate related. It's got to do with my wife and my kids. Uh, my wife and I just had a baby four months ago, and I, I wanted and wanted and wanted another child. And to me, that's uh, probably the, my biggest accomplishment is uh, this baby boy that I have, and it's four months old. So... You know, I'm just happy with what I do. Uh, I like who I work with. Uh, life is short, and then you die. And uh, I just, you know, I just think, take care of your family and take care of other people, and, and the guy upstairs will take care of us. And uh, you know, I've been very fortunate. Uh, when this market went the other way, I could have lost everything, but uh, with a little bit of luck and a little bit of planning, we were able to survive it. And, I learned a tremendous amount from that. I'm a lot smarter at what I do now, and I used to figure out I could figure out a way. I felt, used to feel like I could produce my way through anything, and I learned that it's not about what you produce; it's what you do with what you produce. In other words, we can make a million dollars a year. It doesn't mean anything. It's what we're able to do with the money we make. And I also believe that people think they put too emphasis, much emphasis on how much money we make. It's not how much money you make; it's what you do with what you make. I have an 18-year-old uh, boy, that man, that just graduated from high school that we're working into our team, and uh, he uh, works with us outside, and I've been trying to work with him to invest, and uh, he's going to be buying a house and buying some rentals, and I'm trying to kind of give him that direction that uh, tell me if you start investing at 18, by the time you're 50, you don't have to work anymore, or even 45. I didn't really get started in the real estate business until I was 33 years old. 
And uh, looking back, I, you know, I would have started earlier. So it was always my passion to do this, and it's been very good to me. And that's why I like doing this with you, Mike, because I feel like it gives me a chance to give back to the people that have helped me get to where I'm at. A lot of the things we talked about today, I, I didn't come up with. I got those ideas from other people, too. And I like the idea of sharing and helping others. Sid, why have you been so successful? Mike, I think uh, a lot of people have different ways of uh, defining success. I don't think success is a monetary thing. If I've had any success, it's probably got to do with my uh, background, where I'm from, being a farm boy and learning how to work. And and I think work is good. I think uh, people think work is a four-letter word, and I agree. It's a four-letter word. It's a good four-letter word. And um, I enjoy working. I I like driving by our properties, and you know it gives me a lot of pride to see that the properties are well maintained. And you know I have some people here in the office who've worked with us a long time, and it's important to me that I help them and be there them for them when you know something happens. You know if their car breaks down, they don't have the money or whatever, teach them about investing, teach them to buy a house. I think if you put others first, you'll, anybody will be successful, and if you work at it. Sid, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Get an assistant. If somebody were new getting into the business, I'd say get an assistant, get some systems in place, get a plan in place, and uh, start running your business like a business and get out of your own way. Uh, I think we need to start learning to work on our business, not at our business, and look at it from a bird's eye view, look down at your business. I like to think of myself sometimes as if I were to ask, if I have a question, I like to think of if I had a board of directors and I would ask them the question of what their answer would be, and oftentimes I make decisions based on that. So I think uh, to answer your question, Mike, get an assistant, get the system in place, and let's get going. Sid, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Mike, I think the interviews we're doing now are invaluable. I mean, there's, you can't put a you can't put a value on that. I think uh, any success I've had in real estate, uh, I've talked to somebody who's been much, much, much more successful than me, and I've learned so much from them. Uh, we remember Howard Britton and his interviews. What a good job he did of uh, promoting ideas, and I think that's what we need to do: is share in the industry so that we, number one, take care of the consumer, do a good job but also grow our business and take it to the next level. There's always another level. There are, there are no ceilings. We always can improve ourselves, and I think that's the key. Sid, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? I would say to agents, what you need to start doing or we need to start thinking about is instead of thinking of ourselves as being on a treadmill where we just run, 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 run. We don't even know where we're going. I think we need to get a game plan of where we're going. Think about where you're going and where you want to be. You know, if you don't know where you're going, it's hard to get there. And I'd say, get a, you know, get a, where do you want to be in five years? I ask that question a lot. Where do you want to be in five years? And if that's financially fit, I think you should do that. And the way to do that, in my opinion, is start investing in yourself and investment properties and getting that. The other thing I think we need to do is take care of ourselves physically. I think that's another big mistake we make is that uh, we just go, 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 and we eat at fast food, and we don't take care of ourselves, and I think that's a mistake. You get one body. If you don't feel well, it's hard to go out and work and, and enjoy it and do a good job. If you're feeling good, you're physically fit, you're in good shape, you got tons of energy, you just go, 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 and you run out of day before you run out of energy. And I think that's important, too. So I think we need to take care of ourselves, take care of our clients, 
get our financial house in order and enjoy life. I mean, you know, yep, this is, you know, it's not a dress rehearsal. We only get one shot at this. And if you're not where you want to be, figure out a way to change where you're at to get where you want to be. But I think it's imperative that we set goals, we set goals, and that we uh, decide where we are right now and where we want to be and how are we going to get there. And sometimes you got to bring somebody in to help you get there. Well said, you set big goals and achieved them. You showed us how you developed a long-term retirement strategy through real estate investment and how other agents can do the same thing. You showed us how you built your reputation with clients and investors by always doing what you said you would do. You described your successful guaranteed buyout program that creates a safety net for move-up buyers. You treat people the way you want to be treated. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 179 properties last year worth $79 million by working with investors on the other side of the planet. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.